0: welcome to in conversation the regular podcast of encompass go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date this is paul adamson and i'm in conversation with mujtaba Rahman. mujtaba Rahman is the managing director for europe at the Eurasia group we're going to talk about coronavirus uh, Midge, because that's what everybody else is talking about your day job is and uh, your evening job and your night job is is analyzing political risk and now you've got your, your Work cut out for you. So, as we stand, this is being recorded on the 9th of March to be very precise, since things are moving so quickly. What is your current uh, analysis of where we stand, both in terms of the politics and also the, the, the European economy? Thanks so much, Paul. Great to be with you again.
1: This is the dominant theme. It is, it is driving risk across all asset classes, and all of our clients are squarely and solely focused on this one question. And I think. There is a material impact on the political debate, both at the national level across member states, Italy and in Germany, certainly in France, even here indeed in the UK, um, and also at the EU level, where there's a real challenge now um, around whether member states can coordinate on an effective response both to contain the virus but also to deal with the economic fallout. Um, And I think there's, there's probably three countries that are a key focus for us. One, of course, is Italy, right. the second is Germany, uh, and the third is the UK. Italy, because it's been affected the most severely yeah. out of all the countries in Europe. Um, you could even argue it's something of an asymmetric shock because it's um, so pervasive uh, in Italy uh, relative to what's happening in other member states. Uh, it's been disproportionately affected at this stage. So it's a unique shock uh, that has affected the Italian economy and political establishment. There's a lot of interest in Germany because of the question around fiscal response and what the German political establishment will be willing to do both domestically but also sanction at the European level. And then, of course, the UK. I mean, we have a budget on Wednesday. Uh, The budget, Rishi Sunak, the new chancellor, was due to deliver... I think is going to be uh, completely different to the one he will now deliver that is squarely driven by coronavirus. Right. And I think Paul at some point a bit later will also and should talk about the possible impact on UK-EU trade talks because 200 officials from each side may simply not be able to get in a to get room together. And, and talk and I think for that reason uh, we do need to think about whether there are implications firstly for the transition extension. And secondly, on the government's willingness to impose additional costs on business at the end of the year by virtue of the trade deal they're seeking to negotiate, when UK firms are already already struggling with the economic impact of. Corona
0: yeah. So, yeah,
1: lots of different questions that are in the mix. Well, let's.
0: We, we're trying hard not to make this a Brexit-focused podcast, but we, we may fail because coronavirus infects. Forgive the pun. Almost all the debates going on at the moment. Let's quickly move back. As you, since you mentioned Italy, I mean, I know you're not a public health expert. You may be in your private life, but not professionally. Um, but more seriously, the the response of the Italian government, in, in your view, in terms of the the impact on on, on the, the economy, given that the the northern part, of Italy, the, the wealthiest, most affluent most economic dynamic part of the country is the most affected is that in your judgment a a, a proportionate response uh, and what you think will be the likely impact on the on the Italian economy certainly in that region within the country so it's definitely
1: a proportionate response if anything I think the view is more will need to be done that what the government has done so far is simply not enough so over, over the weekend the government announced additional restrictions in response to the continued spread of the virus the red zone which is subject to a partial quarantine uh, it was originally 11 municipalities covering around 50,000 residents. As of the weekend, this has been extended to 14 provinces across five regions, including all of Lombardy. And to just give you a sense, Paul, of the scale, that's 27% of the population, 16 million people, that accounts for 34% of national GDP. Now, I think our view, when looking at what the government has done so far, is that this will not be enough. Right. These measures are going to have to be extended, both in terms of their severity and in terms of their geographical reach, simply given the scale at which the virus is expanding. That, in turn, creates, of course, bigger risks for the Italian economy. I think most... Economists now—you know—where political economists, but most economists, I think, believe the first and second quarter for Italy will be a recession. Right. Which means two quarters of negative growth. That means would there have been a
0: recession anyway, or not necessarily?
1: I think probably not, but weak and subdued growth—you know, flat growth—which has basically been the trend for Italy uh, for the last several years. Um, Now, I think we're actually looking at certainly a technical recession. Uh, given the first two quarters are likely to come out negative and maybe something even more pervasive, that has an immediate impact on the debate around fiscal policy in Italy. So far, the government has spent seven and a half billion euros in two stimulus packages. That's around 0.35 percent of GDP, which is peanuts. Or well, I think the expectation is both Italy has to do a lot more, and most importantly, Germany has to do more domestically and sanction more fiscal space at the EU level in order to really counter this economic shock.
0: So the Italian response, in your words, was was proportionate. Let's talk briefly then about Germany. You're, you're hinting that they are, they are not res responding maybe in a totally appropriate manner to the, to the crisis. So Germany is also being completely overtaken. The debate in Germany has been
1: completely overtaken by coronavirus. Um, I think as of now they are north of a thousand cases. I think eleven hundred and fifty is the number. Um, you know, the, the 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 grand coalition met yesterday. So working through the weekend, in trying to put together a set of policy instruments and measures that are also designed to provide a domestic boost, but also kind of lift um, uh, the performance of. Countries that may also struggle across the euro area, and you know some of the measures that are being talked about in Germany, um, financial assistance to companies that have been affected by coronavirus, around twelve and a half billion in state investments programmed over three years, eight billion in an infrastructure road and railway program over the next four years. I mean, and this is just the beginning of the crisis, Paul. I right. think you know we're not epidemiologists, but when you're looking at the Uh, discussions certainly taking place here in the UK but also um, across Europe it does look as though we're really at the beginning of uh, 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 an approaching pandemic that is going to get much more uh, severe as we work through the summer and uh, what we've done is articulate um, three scenarios, benign, uh, severe and adverse, uh, that uh, we think we will work through over the course of this year. And we're probably floating between scenarios one and two at the moment. Okay,
0: before we talk about the UK and, and the UK trade talks and the eminent uh, UK budget this week. Let's talk about maybe the EU response uh, to the to the corona crisis. To what extent do you see signs of Europe sort of acting together? The Europe hasn't got a very good reputation when it comes to real solidarity as opposed to the rhetoric when it comes to maybe the Eurozone, certainly on migration. And now we have the coronavirus. To what extent are you reassured or not that the EU member states are kind of working together and showing solidarity? It's horrible.
1: It's really tough, boy. It's really tough because Merkel has a very challenging domestic situation, you know, her, her would-be successor, Anna Karenbaugh has blown herself up uh, recently and Merkel finds herself stuck in a really awkward debate over now having to manage a succession uh, with a partner that she hadn't um, you know, expected or, or necessarily wanted. The, the point I'm making here is, you know, there's a big domestic political constraint in Germany around uh, Merkel leadership and this question of Merkel's agency and ability to exercise leadership over this coronavirus question. I mean, the debate in Germany is being led by Olaf Scholz, the finance minister. He's leading the debate in the Bundestag over fiscal response. And Merkel's voice has been somewhat silent. Now, the French and Macron are interesting. He clearly sees the virus as a massive test for the EU institutions, you know, do they crumble under crisis or are they capable of being resilient and delivering a solution that's recognised by EU citizens? And at the moment, it's just not clear the European institutions are delivering, both in terms of containment measures, but also, Paul, importantly, management of the economic fallout. You know, is there a coordinated economic policy response on the fiscal side both of scale um, and of speed, that's necessary to put a floor under the economic damage this crisis may engender. And at the moment, the answer to that is absolutely not. I mean, the ECB and Christine Lagarde will meet on Thursday. Uh, I think uh, Lagarde is being somewhat risk-averse. What could she do, though? So that depends on whether you interpret the crisis uh, as, as being a supply-side or a demand-side crisis. I think there are certain things the bank uh, can, and p- can and potentially will do. They can uh, increase liquidity lines, uh, these long-term refinancing operations, so pumping more money into the economy. That would help businesses that are struggling. There's some discussion about uh, redoing um, the ECB's uh, collateral requirements to make it easier for Banks, other counterparties to access ECB liquidity, potentially expand the bond buying program. That's been something that's discussed as a way of potentially giving a boost and greater confidence to the European economy. And of course, cutting interest rates at the margin, uh, that may also help engender confidence. But I think Lagarde's perspective is of course, yes, the ECB can do a number of things on the supply side, but You also need to manage the demand side, and that's where fiscal policy has a big role to play. And I think the ECB's position and the Guard's position since becoming the president has been... The member states have to take more responsibility for management of the Euro-area economy. So the member states need to do more. And I think what we're seeing right now in Germany, yes, the debate is moving. Yes, the debate is moving in Italy. But it's not enough and it's not coordinated. And it may not be coordinated at the international level, either in the G8 or the G20 or the G7 or the G20. But at the Euro-area level, more needs to happen. There's a Eurogroup meeting on Monday. Expectations are they won't do much. There's a bit of complacency over the debate and that's worrying people because it suggests if there is a recession, it may be deeper, longer, more protracted than it needs to be uh, if there were, if there were otherwise quicker movement.
0: So oh, let's then move Mitch to the to the UK, UK Part One, the, the uh, imminent uh, UK budget, Part Two. We'll talk about Brexit. So Part One, the, the British Chancellor is about to uh, reveal his budget in the next 48 hours. Yes. What are the new complications in in his in I mean, trade? There's
1: been a debate, Paul, between Treasury Number Ten over fiscal stimulus, really, and uh, Sajid Javid was a constraint on movement towards greater fiscal stimulus more quickly. Number 10 is very keen to do that. You know, the leveling up agenda. Also, I think to offset potential economic headwinds later down the line, in light of the kind of trade agreement the government is seeking to implement with Europe. So to kind of counteract what will prove a more challenging economic environment towards the end of the year. Boris Johnson's keen to move more quickly on a fiscal stimulus early. Uh, Rishi Sunak is more in check with that perspective. But at the same time, does want to demonstrate? Look, I'm my own man. Right. Um, I, you know, he is a small, uh, he is a fiscal conservative, probably with a small C. So, mm. uh, you know, there's been there's been also some debate between Sunak and Boris. But I think uh, you you know, he is more minded to do what Number Ten wants. And I think Boris Johnson now, uh, recognizing the coronavirus and the additional pub- public spending that is necessary, I think believes the coronavirus affords him cover to move more quickly. On a fiscal expansion in this budget as opposed to waiting until the autumn. So that basically means it's possible we may get a signal around relaxation of the fiscal
0: rules. Yes. Um, because they're more easily justifiable.
1: Exactly. More, and, and you can use the coronavirus as a justification for uh, a policy position, frankly, number 10 had well before this crisis set in, anyway. It just provides further legitimacy to the arguments number 10 has and will continue to make as we run into Wednesday. The more interesting I think question is whether coronavirus affects uk EU right. trade talks I mean you know, everything is is currently being captured and overtaken by uh, management of management of, of of this virus and it seems uh, to forgive the pun that the UK EU negotiations are unlikely to prove immune either. Right.
0: But last week, the hundred odd uh, civil servants from the UK did travel to to, to Brussels for the fir- the first meetings, right, of the phase right. two talks. So, so the, why I, shouldn't I continue? So, the,
1: the first question I think you're, you're you're getting to here is, you know, can you extend the transition? Can, can d- does does the ability of the UK in particular and certainly Europe to help facilitate a trade deal by the end of the year is that now possible in light of the coronavirus or does it make an extension to the transition more necessary and indeed more likely and and the reason is there's a number of reasons number one you point to you've just pointed to this officials simply may not be able to get on a train and travel to meet each other right now in brussels officials tell me that's fine we can do the thing by teleconference but that's a problem paul because there's no trust Not only is there no trust but david frost boris johnson's chief negotiator has not built back channels informal lines of communication between himself and other eu capitals and the key interlocutors in brussels ollie robbins theresa may sherpa did do that but david frost has not so
0: do you know why he's not done that
1: i think i think the 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 sense in brussels is you know he's a believer in the boris johnson agenda around divergence and he's something of a spokesperson less a negotiator he's there to implement the government's agenda yes and You know, Ollie Robbins was a different type of negotiator. Yes, he recognised the mandate the government had from the referendum in 2016 but was seeking to implement that in a way that would protect the economy mm. this is a government that recognizes the deal they're going to implement will hurt the economy and they're fine with that it's a totally different perspective so i think one problem is travel potential travel restrictions second problem complete lack of trust third problem no back channels and the fourth problem is the bureaucracy whitehall as well as the commission at some point may simply be overtaken by management of this right do they have the bandwidth to actually manage a super complex Trade negotiation in such a limited period of time. So all of those reasons suggest the odds of an extension to the transition have to have to be rising. Maybe maybe only a little bit, but must be rising a little bit because. What was already a very, very, very challenging time frame has just become even more challenging in light of Corona. So that's the first big implication. The second big implication, which I think is really interesting, is whether Corona softens the government's agenda on divergence. Because, right. as you'll know, Paul, and as I know, that governments narrow FTA on goods is going to create a challenge for UK businesses when they transact and trade with the European Union. So there's more friction on the border, more friction means more cost, that's going to hurt the economy. The question is now, in light of corona, in light of the fact businesses in the UK are going to be facing supply chain disruptions, Mm. problems managing staff, there's a whole swathe of measures that Rishi Sunak is likely to announce, short term measures to protect and support businesses through this uncertainty in the short term. Him, can they actually implement the deal they want? Because mm. that's going to now impose an additional burden. So it's, it's certainly light. It's and, this, a,
0: and the subtext also surely about more European cooperation maybe is needed when these, in these exceptional circumstances.
1: Perhaps. I mean, the EU side so far is, is, is sticking to a very tough line, which is if Boris Johnson wants to extend the transition, uh, that's all very well. Uh, but in order to do that, he'll have to pay into the EU budget and use the mechanism in the withdrawal agreement, which means a decision is needed by June. I think Boris will probably try and wait till the very last moment. You know, I hear on this side, they only want to ask for a potential extension in December. It'll be too late. There'll be no, you know, the yeah. EU, as we all know, is a, is, a, is an institution of law. You know, how can you at that point yeah. create a context where both sides can continue talking while maintaining uk participation in things like the single market customs union very difficult to do not clear boris johnson wants to do that but there's just a real question about logistics and time frame on 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 whether the government softens the divergence agenda because of this concern on business again i think the government won't want to it's un- you know i think certainly at this stage the narrative is going to be it's unlikely but it has ignited a debate within the party again about you've got a new band of Tory MPs um, that are in the par- that are in Parliament um, that are sitting on top of these constituencies in the Midlands and right. the North and Wales that depend on uh, supply chains and interaction with Europe, you know and. Uh, Where are they on this question around divergence in the context of coronavirus at the end of the year? So there will be more pressure within the parliamentary party to soften the divergence agenda. And I just think, look at the margin. Corona makes it slightly more likely you get a government that is willing to concede alignment for certain sectors, maybe even on the level playing field in certain areas, to try and mitigate the economic damage of a a, a very hard-line deal prioritises divergence for every sector and every industry. Well
0: I suppose to finish off the image there are certain parallels if I understand you correctly with actually the reasoning behind the the, the UK budget this, this week which is that it, there is a more justification to turn the tabs on a bit on public spending more than they normally be expected to do uh, with, and less resistance from the hardline Conservative Party members because it, these are exceptional circumstances therefore also with the, with the Brexit talks these are exceptional circumstances so rather than be seen as a kind of going back on promises right. or, a, or a weakness or failure of statesman statesmancraft, the government is, is justified up to point in saying let's loosen some weaken some of our red lines. Let's go for a, a, an extension at some point without it being a huge major political issue. Perhaps,
1: but the problem is that the players at the top of this government are so ideological, right, and so committed to their worldview, which sees Europe as a constraint, right. right. I mean, they really do believe in the regulatory autonomy and divergence agenda this is something they believe deeply and they believe there are benefits to divergence for new sectors um, over the medium to long term it's something i think that is absolutely central to the way they perceive and think about the world so these neither of these two concessions either extending transition period or indeed softening the divergence mandate are going to be easy for boris but corona is again an extraordinary um, uh, uh, situation that I think is rocking, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the the debate and could potentially, uh, the, as I say, just at the margin, perhaps drive a degree of softening on both of those questions. Won't be easy for the government, but I I do think it's worth interrogating whether or not that's now more likely.
0: Okay, well we have to leave it there, Mushta Baraman, Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.